Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I do invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Malachi 3. I'll just comment briefly that my voice is a bit weak this morning, so if I seem to be less enthusiastic about the sermon this morning, it's not that. It's just my voice is weak. We're turning to Malachi 3. We've been following Malachi's cross-examination of Israel's hearts in recent weeks, and last week saw Malachi challenge Israel for accusing God of injustice for not blessing them and allowing the wicked to flourish. But then in perfect timing for Advent, Malachi turned their attention to the fact that God was about to send a messenger and then show up himself to bring salvation and judgment. We'll see more next week about the promised messenger and savior, but in the middle this week, we have a passage about tithing. Maybe that seems very un-Christmas-like, but actually Malachi is once again not so much interested in Israel's wallets as he is in their hearts and their relationship with the Lord. And we'll see that once again this morning. So turn with me to Malachi 3. We'll begin reading in verse 6 together. This is God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now... We call the arrogant blessed, evildoers, not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is God's word. Father, how we thank you for your word that you have given to us. Would you use it in our hearts and lives this morning to make us more like you and to give you greater glory. In Christ's name, amen. This past week, as I was preparing for this message, I read a a comment from another pastor who was preaching through Malachi. And when he was in chapter 2, a visitor to the church came up to him and said, Pastor, I've never heard a sermon on Malachi 2 before. And he said, 
I've heard tons of sermons on Malachi 3. And that, of course, is referring to this passage because this passage is a favorite text. Anytime the budget is in the red or a pastor has a, a new ministry he'd like to start, well, we'll go to Malachi 3. Of course, we're not looking at this text today because our budget needs a boost. We're looking at this text because we've been walking through these prophets and this is the next text in God's word. And it's an area in God's wisdom that he addresses in his word for our life and our faith. Of course, preaching a sermon on tithing isn't always the easiest thing for a pastor to do. There's always the risk of it sounding like another nonprofit fundraising pitch. But that's not the hardest thing. I think the hardest thing is the fact that money is often the most tangible evidence of where our hearts are. And so it's easy to talk in general about honoring God, but when it comes to giving our money, well, now it begins to feel personal. You know, in marriage surveys, time and time again, they say that money is the number one area of conflict in marriage. Well, why is that? It's not because money's the problem. It's because money is how we express our desires and our priorities and our values. And those come into conflict with money. I think back to maybe the early days of our marriage and conflict about how much to save or whether to buy the name brand or the store brand of cheese. Well, cheese wasn't the issue. There were all sorts of fears and other desires at play in my heart that were expressed there because money is a window into our hearts. And I think that's Malachi's main point this morning. And he addresses it with this key point. Israel's hearts are far from the Lord and that is evident in their giving and their unwillingness to serve God. So Malachi is going to address Israel's hearts, then he's going to address their wallets, and then he's going to address their lives. And let's look at each of those together. In verses 6 through 8, Malachi addresses Israel's hearts. God begins with a brief history of his relationship with Israel. And he reminds Israel that he has been faithful. He has not changed. He has kept his covenant promises. But Israel has not been faithful. From the days of their fathers, they have repeatedly turned aside from God's word and God's statutes. But in God's mercy, you would expect God bringing up this history of their relationship perhaps as a justification to reject Israel. But he does just the opposite. He uses it as an opportunity for a gracious summons to call to Israel, return to me and I will return to you. It is again a summons to repent with a gracious promise of forgiveness and blessing if they do. But the depth of Israel's heart problem is immediately evident in their response. They say, how shall we return to you? And this is not a sincere question wondering how to repent. It's more of a defensive response. You know, the type of person who is always blaming others for things. And when someone comes to them with a, a gentle rebuke, they say, oh, sure, it's, it's me that's the problem around here. Well, that's the tone of Israel's response here. God, how are we supposed to return to you? You're the one blessing the wicked and not blessing us. And so God states a very clear example of where Israel needs to repent. They are robbing God. And once again, Israel's shocked. How how are we robbing you? And God says, because you are not giving me the tithes and the offerings that you are supposed to give me. And by not giving them, you are robbing me of what is mine, and you are robbing me of the worship 
that my name deserves. But these verses clarify right up front that God's primary concern is not about money. God has everything he needs. He doesn't need money. Tithing is first about covenant obedience and a heart for the Lord. Tithe literally means a tenth. It's talking about the 10% contribution on all of their produce that God's law had required. And obeying this law was a matter of the fear of the Lord. But it's also an expression of gratitude to the God who saved them. In Exodus 35 and 36, after God had saved Israel from Egypt and spared them and forgiven them and after the golden calf incident, God called his people to bring contributions for the building of the tabernacle. And the people gave so generously that the craftsmen had to ask them to stop giving because there was no more need for what they were bringing. That's evidence of a heart that fears God and that knows God and what he has done for them. But in contrast, here in Malachi, Israel's refusal to give was covenant disobedience flowing from hearts no longer in awe of God, no longer thankful to God, and no longer trusting in his faithfulness. And so I think for us, as we look at our own hearts too, the first question is not a question about dollars and cents or our budget, it's a question about our hearts. Because the use of our money will often be the first thing to declare what it is we love and what it is that we fear. And so we need only look at how we use our money to tell whether we are overwhelmed by the goodness of God and his love for us in salvation, or whether we are worried about whether God will actually provide for us up to our standards and expectations. I agree with Dr. Ian Duguid, who put it this way. The main point of our text is that our giving is a window into how we view God. If we see God as the gracious giver of good gifts, the one who opens the windows of heaven to pour down blessing on his people, then we will desire to excel in the grace of giving. If we truly trust his goodness, it will transform our outlook on money and indeed on all of life. Because the heart is the foundation for tithing and serving. So Malachi starts with Israel's hearts, but then he addresses their wallets more specifically, and he does that in verses 8 through 12. Israel is robbing God by not bringing the full tithe into the storehouse, and God charges the whole nation with taking part in this sin. Now the tithe here is specifically referring to the 10% on their produce that Israel was called to bring into the temple. This, of course, was just the beginning of Israel's giving. Israel was also called to bring free will offerings. They were called to bring contributions for the building of the tabernacle and the temple. They were called to show hospitality and to help those in need. So the tithe was not the only giving that Israel was called to do, but it was the baseline, the 10% that they were to give each year of their produce. And Deuteronomy 14 describes what that tithe was used for. The tithe was used to support the priests and the Levites who did not have an inheritance among the people. And so the tithe uh, was enabled Israel to offer worship to God by supporting the priests in their ministry. And then the tithe was also used to provide relief to the poor and the sojourner, the widow and the orphan, to provide for their needs and enable them to participate in the feasting and worship of the Lord. 
And it's not surprising to see the impact of Israel's failure to tithe. I think I've mentioned before that Nehemiah was ministering at a similar time to Malachi. And if we were to flip over to Nehemiah, what we'd find is that in Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah says that all of Judah was not bringing their tithes into the temple. And so the Levites and priests left their service in the temple and went to the fields so that they could grow food to provide for themselves. And Nehemiah says, because you did not tithe, the house of God is forsaken. The worship of God has ceased because you did not tithe. And then in Nehemiah 5, we find out that instead of supporting the poor with tithes, the leaders of Judah were actually taking advantage of their poverty. And instead of supporting them, they were using it as an opportunity to take their land and indenture them in servitude. And so we see the sinful results of disobeying God and robbing him of his tithes. Perhaps at the root of this, verse 9 tells us that Israel had gotten things backwards. Israel felt that they couldn't or needn't tithe because they were doing poorly economically. But God says it's actually the other way around. They were doing poorly economically because they were cursed for not tithing. If instead they would trust him and tithe on what they do have, he would bless them. I think it's interesting that typically putting God to the test was a sinful expression of distrust. But here, God invites his people to put him to the test, meaning he wants his people to step out in faith, even though they don't see exactly how it will play out, and watch to see how he will be faithful to meet all of their needs. And God promises that if they do this, he will open windows of heaven and pour down blessings until there is no need left. What a beautiful promise, a beautiful picture of God's provision, windows of heaven opening up to pour down blessing. I think that's what we all felt like as three-year-olds when the pinata broke and all the candy came pouring out of heaven onto us. But that's, that's so much more than that. It's God's favor raining down on his people in beautiful, gracious abundance that fires our imagination. Of course, as beautiful as this promise was, it shouldn't have been surprising to Israel. It's what God had been promising Israel all along. If you were to turn back to Deuteronomy 28, you would find God promising Israel this, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations in the earth, and blessed shall you be in the city. And blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed will you be when you come in and blessed will you be when you go out. Do you hear the comprehensive blessing that God promises his people for obedience? And so when we get to this beautiful phrase about opening windows of heaven, this is no sort of last ditch effort to draw Israel's hearts to him. No, it's the promise he'd been giving them from day one if they would obey him. This was the promise Israel had from with God's covenant. And if they obey, God says he will remove the curse and rebuke the devourer and bless them such that their land will be a land of delight that the nations will marvel at. Well, this was Israel's call to their wallets to obey specifically with the promise of blessing. Maybe then we should pause and ask, well, how does this apply to us as Christians? 
Christians are not under the law of Moses anymore. So are we required to tithe 10% to the church? And on the one hand, the New Testament does not repeat the specific 10% amount in any particular verse. However, the New Testament does say that giving is still a matter both of obedience and of heart attitude to the Lord. And I think we can say that the 10% tithe to the church is still a wise and good baseline for giving as God's people. Let me trace in the New Testament why I say that. Some quote Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, where he says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart to argue that each Christian is free to give whatever amount that he would like. But this verse is not the standard for Christian giving because the context is not the regular giving to the church, but rather extra financial help collected for fellow believers who were suffering from famine. And I think we can say that we should give extra as the Lord leads us in our heart. But the New Testament also very clearly states in 1 Corinthians 9 and in 1 Timothy 5 that just as Israel gave to support the Levites and the priests and make Israel's corporate worship possible, so in the New Testament, pastors and missionaries and those called to full-time ministry in the church are to be supported by the giving of their congregations. And so just as in the Old Testament, not tithing would lead to the house of God being forsaken, so in the New Testament, not giving or giving minimally is still a matter of disobedience that hinders the worship and the work of the Lord. The Westminster Confession also talks about the principle of general equity between the Old Testament and New Testament. What it means is that although in the New Testament the Old Testament law is not legally binding on us, The same God has called us into covenant relationship with him in Christ. And these laws show us who God is and what he loves and how his people are to relate to him. And as such, the principles of the Old Testament laws are still guides for God's people. And so I believe that the 10% tithe is still a wise and right baseline for our giving. In my mind, the question for us as Christians is not, are we allowed to give less than 10%? But rather, shouldn't Christians be eager to give more than 10% whenever possible? If Israel overflowed in gratitude and giving after the Exodus, don't we have an even greater salvation that fulfilled what the Exodus foreshadowed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in our place to rescue us from certain punishment and secure for us eternal redemption? Paul talked about this specifically when he encouraged the Corinthians to give in 2 Corinthians 8. He said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And shouldn't that overwhelm our hearts with gratitude and a desire to give as well? Shouldn't that cause us to care about the cause of the gospel and the well-being of others as God has cared for us? I think the New Testament pattern then is the same as the old, calling us to a baseline of regular giving and an invitation and a willingness and a desire to give more and more generously whenever possible. And that if we fail to do this, if we fail to tithe, we once again are robbing God. Of course, we need to be wise Paul says that we should not give so much that we become a burden on others because we can't buy food or or pay our mortgage anymore. 
But I think if I reflect on my own heart, my most stingy moments come not when I have the least, but when my worries are the strongest or my desires are the strongest. And that reflects itself in my money. And while the prosperity claim that faith will lead to wealth is patently unbiblical, the principle that God blesses those who trust him and to give generously out of thanks for him is demonstrated both in scripture and in the lives of his people over and over. Phil Riken, a former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, shares the story of a former deacon in his church who wrote, Dr. Boyce one year expressed disappointment at the pledges to our missions giving and encouraged us to give a second pledge. The Holy Spirit convicted me to do so, so I filled out a second pledge card. On the drive home, I suddenly realized that my mental math was wrong and that I had pledged 50% more than I had intended to. I broke out into a cold sweat. How am I going to live? How can the Lord provide for me? We prayed about it all week, and by the next Sunday, we had decided that God would honor this commitment in some way, even though we didn't know how. It was just a few weeks after that my boss called me into his office and let me know that effective January 1st, I would be receiving a raise for the exact dollar amount of the commitment that I had accidentally filled out. Now, I don't share this story with you as a promise. I'm not guaranteeing raises if you give more to the church. What I am saying is that while we do not make claims on God for the how or the what, to doubt the principle that God rains down blessings on those who in faith give generously out of their love for him is to doubt the clear words of scripture and his character is demonstrated over and over again. And maybe as a brief note to those of you who are kids or teens this morning, the Bible never says that we start tithing once we graduate college or give a full-time job. If Jesus is your savior, then you should have the same desire to be generous with the money you do receive. Maybe it doesn't seem like much, but whether it's a VBS offering or offering here in the service, the important thing is not how much you have to give, but whether you give your money in a way that shows that you know all you have is from the Lord and that you treasure Jesus above everything else. Well, having addressed Israel's hearts and Israel's wallets, Malachi ends with a last indictment against Israel's pattern of life in verses 13 to 15. As it turns out, tithing was just one area of Israel's life that they were withholding for the Lord because they've decided that it is vain or useless to serve the Lord. In many ways, this is just a reiteration of the same thing they said last week. The wicked are prospering, we're not doing so well, so why keep serving the Lord? It doesn't do us much good. This statement reveals Israel's self-focus and why their only hope is repentance and returning to the Lord. Because serving the Lord has been reduced to whether it is profitable. They say, what profit is our keeping God's commandments or going about in mourning? The word literally means that Israel no longer feels like they're getting their cut from God for all the effort they're putting in to keeping his laws. And once again, Israel is going through life with their logic inverted. They are using service to God as a means to get what they really want, which is material blessing and relief from difficulty. 
but the Lord desires their hearts. He is their only true satisfaction. And so he constantly withholds material blessing and relief from difficulties to show them that their approach and their lifestyle and their desires do not lead to blessing. So Israel continues to act for their perceived advantage to get the material blessing they want, but they do so at the expense of trust and obedience of the Lord, which only leads to more cursing and more need. It's really a question of motives and priorities, isn't it? And it's a question we should be asking ourselves too. Why do we serve the Lord? What's our goal? What's our motivation in serving God? Is it because it's expected of us? Dad gets me up at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning and I've got to go to church or go help serve? Do we feel guilty that we're not doing as much as others and so we push ourselves to serve more out of guilt? Do we want to be recognized or admired for our service? Or do we feel that if we do enough good serving for the Lord, surely he'll keep the really bad suffering away from us? If these are our motivations, we might be serving in order to get our cut from God. But what Israel needed and sometimes also what we need, and that is a change of heart. Because the world's goods are nothing but fool's gold, sparklingly attractive and utterly useless for any lasting joy or satisfaction. This world's goods only distract us from what we really need. A savior to bring us back into relationship with God who is the source of all true blessing and all true joy and all true satisfaction. In the end, what we need is a life of giving and serving that demonstrates a heart captivated by the love of Jesus. And as Michael Barrett sums it up, giving to God is not to enrich him, nor is it a bargaining device to get more from God. It is rather an expression of the enjoyment of the Lord himself. The more believers find satisfaction in the person of God rather than in possessions, the more freely they will give themselves and all they have to the Lord. You know, I said at the beginning that maybe a passage on tithing didn't seem like a very appropriate Christmas text. I think this is actually a perfect pre-Christmas text. Because what is the Christmas message but God's overflowing generosity at the incarnation? The Son of God coming and emptying himself to be born as a baby for our salvation that we might become rich by his poverty. Our gifts under the tree aren't some nod to the American economic machine. No, they're a reminder of God's greatest gift of love and a desire to imitate him. It's not restricted to Christmas, of course. That's what we're called to all the time because it's a matter of hearts. And so the question for us is, do we live a life lived by a pattern of those whose hearts are captivated by the love of our Savior? It's a message of Christmas, but it's a message for every day. Thanks be to our God. Let's pray. Father, how I thank you for all that you have done for us. How I thank you for Jesus Christ. How we thank you for a salvation in which you poured yourself out for our sake. And how I pray that our hearts would first be captivated by your goodness and your love. That our hearts would be firm in our trust in you and in our trust in your promises and your faithfulness. And how I pray that this would lead to lives overflowing and giving and serving for the glory of your name. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.